0: Hi, this is Larry Bernstein. Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 9. We have some incredible speakers on this call from academia, industry, medicine, as well as economists. So sit back and enjoy the show. Economies have been opening up around the world this week, so let's see what happens. The Chatham House rules apply for this call. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more without putting the speaker at risk. The format of the call will be the same as the previous eight weeks, each speaker will be given only six minutes. At the five minute point, I may throw in a question or two and then we're off to the next speaker. I find the format to be both fun and incredibly informative. After all the speakers have spoken, there'll be a general question and answer period. This call is being recorded. Uh, Let's get started with our first speaker. Uh, Lisa DeMoore is a PhD in clinical psychology. She writes the monthly adolescent column for the New York Times and is the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa, why don't you start us off?
1: Thanks so much, Larry, and thanks for having me here. So, I want to start by thinking about stress in broad scope because obviously this is a wildly stressful experience for people from the psychological side. And one of the questions that comes up is who's gonna be most stressed by this? And the way we wanna think about this is to appreciate that stress is a dynamic process, meaning that it depends on other things. So when we think about what makes an event stressful, there will be two major factors. One is how stressed was the person to whom it happened before the event occurred? And what resources do they have at their disposal to counterbalance the stress? So if we think about the stressors associated with COVID-19, the first question we need to ask is, well, who was already stressed in advance of this? So it could be people with personal stresses, such as going through a difficult divorce. And of course, it will also be people who are facing major structural stresses, such as poverty, racism, lack of access to excellent educational or medical options. So in that way, the stress of COVID-19 is in no way evenly distributed it will fall more brutally on people who are already stressed. Then the second factor is what resources do people have at their disposal to counterbalance the stress? So one person getting unemployed who has a lot of money in the bank will experience that as much less stressful than somebody who has fewer resources at their disposal. Similarly with social isolation. If a person who becomes socially isolated has lots of friends they're connecting to digitally all the time, that's going to be one thing. If they have fewer friends or less access, they're going to find this much more stressful. So then, of course, the question becomes, how do we help people? So a lot of the stress of COVID-19 is sort of a done deal. We may not be able to relieve it until we get the medical interventions we're waiting for. When that happens, we think in psychology about raising supports. And I think about stress and support as two sides of an equation when we're in a hard time. So if we cannot reduce the stress, we have to raise the supports. And we can think at this about this both at an individual level, like what person per person by person matters to help them feel better. You know, What do they need in light of the stresses they have? And then also at the broader cultural level. Okay, let's talk for a moment about anxiety. So obviously, anxiety is high right now, and this is good. Anxiety is a normal and healthy emotion that makes noise when something's wrong. That's actually how it is supposed to work. And one thing we're up against a little bit in psychology is that anxiety, I would say roughly in the last decade or so, has gotten a bad name. That people talk about it as though it is always and everywhere something you should avoid or minimize and that's not how we see it in many ways anxiety is the emotional equivalent of the human pain response it's protected so if you touch a hot burner the pain of that is uncomfortable it gets your attention and it helps you to pull your hand away similarly if you're driving and someone cuts you off the anxiety you feel when that happens gets your attention, it's uncomfortable, and it helps you to maneuver towards safety. So to a degree right now, anxiety is appropriate and helpful. What we want is that everyone has times when they don't have to feel anxious. Maybe they're home and they can relax and not worry. But at the grocery store, everybody's anxiety should be a little bit elevated. Um, It's uncomfortable, but it helps us to watch where the other shoppers are, not touch our face, do all of those right things. Anxiety can reach levels that we consider to be pathological. There's two conditions for that. One is when there's anxiety in the absence of a threat. So right now we don't really have that problem, unfortunately. The other is when there's anxiety that is grossly out of proportion to the threat. So you shouldn't be having a panic attack at the grocery store. If you are, here's something that's really important to know. We are great in psychology at treating pathological anxiety, and people can work with clinicians now, mental health clinicians, just as they are doing telehealth appointments with their primary care physician, they can also do telehealth appointments to get mental health care. Now let's talk for a moment about girls and women and where they come into this. Anxiety, when we look at it across decades, has been diagnosed at you know medical levels or pathological levels, at twice the rate for girls and women as it does for boys and men. But this doesn't mean that they're more biologically vulnerable. It's largely socialization, that when women and men, women become anxious, girls become anxious or upset, they're more likely to collapse in on themselves. Boys and men are more likely to act out. But there is a gendered feature here we want to pay attention to, which is that non-white women are the ones who are most likely to be essential workers. And so there's a gendered piece that comes in in terms of who is exposed as a result of structural factors in our culture that are going to make a really big difference. Last thing I'm going to say here is if we look at the long haul on this, it's going to come down at the individual level to how people cope, whether people use positive coping mechanisms or negative coping mechanisms to get through it. So positive being taking good care of themselves, getting outside, um, happy distractions, negative withdrawal, substance misuse, things like that. So if you're thinking about this big or little, positive coping mechanisms are going to be the thing that gets us through.
0: Thanks, Lisa. Um, This is a quick follow-up question. Yeah. In schools, with school being closed, um, teenagers are now home with their parents. Uh, A lot of stress was caused by the social interactions at school, uh, but we have a different interaction at home. Do you think that for at least teenage girls, are their stress levels down on the aggregate? I mean, obviously individuals will, be, will vary, but do you think this is, um, it's, a, it's like a quiet time?
1: I think it depends on the kid, but what I will say is that being home with one's parents 24-7 really goes against the grain of being a teenager. And so the families that I'm seeing deal with this most successfully are finding ways to grant independence and privacy to their teenagers, even while helping everyone observe the appropriate social distancing guidelines.
0: Okay. I'll come back to your Q&A in a little bit. Um, Jacob Appel, you're next. Uh, Jacob is uh, Director of Ethics, Education, and Psychiatry at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He's the author of numerous books, and he joined us at a previous call. Jacob, welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure. I've been asked to address two distinct questions um, in medical ethics, one related to how we make decisions for COVID patients and the other on the ethics of vaccination. And I'll tackle each separately. So first, in some ways, decision-making for COVID patients is the same as for all seriously ill patients. If possible, and if the patient has decisional capacity, we ask the patient what he or she wants done. In bioethics, this is what we call autonomy, but it's better to think of as the Frank Sinatra rule, I'll do it my way. But if the patient is too sick or delirious to communicate his or her wishes or understand what's going on, then we have to look to an advanced directive. An advanced directive can either be living wills that spell out exactly what will once done in a particular circumstances such as whether one wants to be intubated if one suffers from COVID pneumonia, or a healthcare proxy assigned to make those decisions. And in the absence of a formal advance directive, almost every state allows close family members to make decisions for incapacitated loved ones. The standard we use for adults is known as substituted judgment, which means we ask not what's in the patient's best interest, but what would the patient have wanted done if they were alert and awake and could answer our questions. So how do we know what the patient would have wanted? The best way is to have asked them before they got sick. In the COVID crisis, we should all be on alert. There is simply no longer any excuse for not knowing what one's own medical wishes are at the end of life, or for having discussed them with your family. I cannot tell you how many times, as a physician in the hospital, I have called up healthcare proxies and explained that a relative was dying, and they express shock that they need to make a decision because they didn't even know they were the healthcare proxy. Or on one occasion, they didn't even know that the person was a relative. Alternatively, when this isn't available, we don't know exactly what the patient does want. The family can extrapolate from the way they've lived their life and from previous medical choices, but that's not ideal. COVID makes this more complicated because the prognosis is extremely variable. If we believe that 88% of patients on ventilators don't survive, as a recent Northwell study revealed, and another 5% stay permanently on the vent, how do we weigh a 7% of greater recovery, when a patient has said in the past, they don't wanna be at a ventilator unless there's a reasonable chance of surviving. Is 7% a reasonable chance, a good chance? A comparison with another illness might be helpful. The average life expectancy for ALS through Lou Gehrig's disease is about three years. Stephen Hawking lived more than 50, so declaring a case hopeless or futile with a much less studied illness that's even less predictable is far more challenging. So, to answer the first question, I want to give you all a practical piece of advice. It's not enough to have a healthcare proxy. You should give a copy of your advanced directive or proxy form to your proxy, to your doctor, to a healthcare attorney if you have one, and most important, you should keep a copy on yourself, either in your wallet, your purse, or if the jurisdiction permits it, on your cell phone. Large numbers of people, it turns out, have their forms in their safe deposit boxes, which when you're incapacitated in an emergency is the last place you want to have one. As to the second question, it's been proposed that since prisoners are often young and healthy, and the spread of COVID through prisons is now rampant, unfortunately, and might reach 100% in some jurisdictions, that prisoners be used in early vaccine trials. In return, we could offer them reduced sentences for volunteering. The particular sort of experiments people have in mind are generally human challenge experiments in which people are vaccinated and then intentionally exposed to the virus, which is what Jenner famously did during his early smallpox inoculations, but it's very rare in medicine today. There are several ethical challenges with this. Prisoners often come from challenged socioeconomic backgrounds, have low health literacy, and may feel pressured to take part. There's also a disturbing history of experiments on prisoners, so this does not occur in a vacuum. And it opens the door to a slippery slope. What if we later ask prisoners to donate blood or kidneys or corneas for shorter sentences? Finally, prisoners released early may pose either a threat of recidivism or former victims may feel they've been changed by justice. On the other hand, such programs could use nonviolent prisoners or more educated prisoners who will not feel pressured to take part. And if the goal of prison is at least in part reform, this is a meaningful way for prisoners to get back. And finally, it's worth noting in vaccine trials, there is supposed to be what we call equipoise. We don't know whether the vaccine will work or not. So these prisoners actually might end up benefiting from the protection. And finally, a related question is whether the results of such research or other unethical research, if conducted in foreign countries, should be used by the United States to protect our own citizens. We may recall the heated debate over whether the Nazi data that scientists allegedly discovered from concentration camp prisoners um, should be used, or whether that data was either fabricated or flawed. Some of the data might be valid, but it's unlikely to save thousands of lives today. More recently, the New England Journal of Medicine under Marsha Angel refused to publish AIDS research from abroad that didn't meet Western ethical standards. The concern is that we don't want to create incentives for unethical research, and we want to honor the dignity of the mistreated subjects. That being said, from a practical standpoint, I'm not sure these ethical objections matter. If a foreign power created a COVID vaccine through unethical means that could save many thousands of lives and our economy, it's almost inconceivable we wouldn't find a way to use it. Thanks.
0: Perfect. Um, all right, um, Jacob. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I can ask one question now, and I'll come back uh, as well as later. Um, in your b- book on "Who Says You're Dead," you have a, a number of ethical questions, including one about Typhoid Mary, and she was someone who was asymptomatic but a carrier, and she infected a number of people, and she was infectious, I think, for her whole life. We've heard that the COVID virus uh, has, is potentially asympt- is, of course, asymptomatic, but also um, you may be infectious for a very, very long period of time. Imagine that you are infectious either for the rest of your life or for some enormous long period of time. Do you think it's appropriate public policy to quarantine that individual indefinitely?
2: So the short answer is I think all of us would agree that if you pose that great a threat to the public health, We would ask you to sacrifice your liberty, but we want to find a way to compensate you and build you a meaningful life that was worth a trade-off. And therein lies the challenge. We did not do that for Typhoid Mary, unfortunately.
0: Fair enough. Okay. Um, Our next speaker is Professor Dick DeVoe. Uh, Dick was my statistics professor when I was at Wharton, and he was also a part-time stand-up comedian. I don't know if he's still doing that. Um, But please, Dick, go ahead.
3: Thanks, Larry. So uh, I've been asked to talk about uh, three issues, kind of a statistical hodgepodge. I guess they're all the things that Larry didn't quite learn in that course. But uh, I'm going to talk about models and what all these models of COVID, what they have in common, what their, what their problems are, uh, a little bit about uncertainty, and then finally the type one and type two error conundrum. So let me start with models. Uh, George Box is one of my mentors. He's a famous statistician. And he had two sayings that I love. The first is quite a famous one. He said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I'll get back to that in a minute. My, my preferred one from his, is he said, statisticians like artists have the bad habit of falling in love with their models and i think that's what you see uh, certainly it's rampant in the economics profession it's rampant all over the place it, but it's important to remember that models simply aren't reality some of them are very accurate and others are pure almost pure fantasy it turns out physical phenomena are of course much more predictable than social or economic phenomena so and jacob just talked about the uncertainty in in medical models which which is you know you think that's close to a physical model, but we have a lot of uncertainty there. I'm thinking about two kinds of models uh you know growing up when I was a kid, weather forecasts were were pretty bad. you really couldn't trust a weather weather forecast to know whether to take your umbrella out in the day, and they've gotten in the last 40 or 50 years, incredibly uh, more accurate. And the reason for that is two things, it's massive amounts of data and really complicated models that are based on, on physics. On the other hand, we still have econometric models. Um, one of my favorite quotes was from the head of Wharton econo- Econometrics. I'm afraid I don't remember his name, but he was once asked, how can his forecast be so bad all the time? How can they be wrong all the time? And he said, quote, my job isn't to make forecasts. My job is to sell forecasts. So this, this is the problem with models. Um, they can be useful, but they, they depend enormously on the data that we have and on parameters. There's been a lot of talk about the transmission rate R. If we just knew what R was, we'd know a lot more about what flattening the curve can mean. And recently, two, two researchers at Stanford, Susan Holmes and Claire Dunnett, have looked at R and have postulated that R is just not the same uh, worldwide. It's kind of a ridiculous assumption to think that the transmission rate in a country, let's say like Japan, where people culturally social distance themselves normally compared to a country like Italy, where people greet each other with hugs and kisses. So they have, started putting in local R's and gotten a lot more accurate results. So all of these models can be useful, but they're really based on lots of assumptions and lots of things we just don't know. And the main thing that about these models is that we have to deal with uncertainty. And Kahneman-Tversky, Kahneman, the, the Nobel Prize winner, and his colleague, Amos Tversky, show that people are just incredibly bad at probability, and people mix up conditional probabilities. They mix up probability of A given B with the probability of B given A. So the probability that I test positive if I have a disease might be very high, but that's not the same as the probability that I have a disease given that I've tested positive, which we'll come back to in a minute. But let's just talk about risks for a minute because I want to get to Larry's question about whether his his parents should drive or fly from Florida to Chicago these days. So the prob The probability so that actually the National Safety Council keeps track of all sorts of odds of dying lifetime which is which is a fun thing to, to go look at the probability of dying in a motivational vehicle crash in your lifetime is about one in a hundred there is about one death per a hundred million miles of highway travel, and that compares to about a third of a chance of an accident in an airplane per 100 million miles, none of which were fatal in 2015. So what that boils down to is the probability of dying in a plane crash lifetime is so small you can't even calculate it. If you include private airplanes and air taxis, it's about one in 10,000. And the probability from dying from choking on food is about three times greater. So, So normally I would say, Yeah, it's much safer for your parents to drive from Florida to Chicago than to fly. But this isn't normal. This is, as they say, the new normal. But so what do we have to estimate now? I'm going to say that the probability that they're going to die from a crash is going to be negligible. But what about the probability that they catch COVID on it? So to make these two things equal, so the probability that they die going from Florida to Chicago is going to be about one in 10,000 for that flight. So if we say that the death rate from COVID is about 5%, then we'd have to think that the chance of getting COVID on board that flight is less than one out of 4,000 to make those equal. So I'm going to leave that back to you, Larry, to decide whether you think what the chances are of getting contaminated on the plane.
0: All right, I'll work that out.
3: So before before I get cut off, let's talk about this article in the New York Times recently that, that postulated the following. It said, suppose a test is 90% effective for COVID. That is, it has 10% false positives. And so you think that if you tested positive, you have about a 90% chance of actually having the disease. But that's not quite right. Here's the way I look at it. Suppose that we test just about a million people. And let's suppose that the test is accurate in that if you have the disease, it will will show you as positive. So if we assume that 5% of all people have the disease, which might be high, then there'll be about 50,000 people with the disease and they'll all test positive. But there are also 10% false positives. And that's the problem. So that's about 100,000 people who do not have the disease, but who are have a positive test. So now you're sitting there with a positive test. You say, what are my chances? Well, you're one of 150,000 out of this million that tested positive, but only one third of those actually have the disease. So that's how the Times came up with the statement that nearly 70% chance of not having the disease. I think what confuses people is how can a test be that bad? If you have it, it seems like it should to, if you don't have it, it seems like it shouldn't show. But that's that's a biological question. I'm not going to attempt to answer that one.
0: Okay, great. Um, Dick, will come back to you with a question at the end. Our next speaker is Ken Rogoff. Uh, Ken is a professor of economics at Harvard. Um, he's written a number of works. One of them is, uh, his book is called The Curse of Cash, and he's also written a book called This Time is Different. Ken, why don't you start us off? Ken, I think your mute button's still on. Uh, sorry, I didn't get the
4: basics. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for being here. Um, Great. First, uh, obviously, this is just an extraordinary period. This time is different. This is the worst crisis in generations. Uh, after the Great Depression, it took 10 years to get back to where we started in per capita GDP. After post-war financial crisis, four to five years, I think something in that range would be a place to start, although there's enormous uncertainty. Um, I want to pick up on a couple issues. Uh, First, the sharply rising US debt. Uh, I think this is clearly warranted. Output is down, Lord knows, 25%, 35%. Um, So this is the time to use debt. There's no comparison between the situation we were in we're in now and perhaps uh, five years ago it's an extraordinary period but is it a free lunch there are people who say it is because the growth rates greater than the interest rate but that's actually if you look at the last two hundred years been quite common more than half the time in advanced economies they still run into various kinds of financial and debt crises Uh, it's no guarantee I'd also say in the modern state a lot of um, a lot of the obligations of the government are beneath the table the headline debt that you see may be thought of as senior market debt but there's a lot of other debt starting with pensions that's junior debt and what seems to be a free lunch may weigh on the junior debt uh, a good example is Italy where everyone knows it has a lot of headline debt but it also is paying out 16% of GDP per year in publicly-provided pensions, and uh, its capacity for borrowing is more limited than that of the United States. In fact, the United States is quite unique, and an interesting question is, how unique? Uh, During the fixed exchange rate system of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there arose what was called the Triffin Dilemma, which was that Europe, especially in Japan, were holding more and more dollars. And yet, the U.S. economy was shrinking and shrinking relative to the rest of the world. Something very similar is happening today, where U.S. uh, market-held debt is almost as big as all the other advanced economies put together, and yet the U.S.'s share of global GDP is falling. Now, we don't have a fixed exchange rate system, but with inflation targeting, we have something not far from it, and there's a paper paper not by myself, but by uh, colleagues, Emmanuel Farhi and Matteo Maggiore, I recommend to you where they show that if you look at this historically and theoretically, uh, when you get a situation like this, it can become quite fragile. So what seems to be you know, an endless, uh, you do need to think about. Again, we're doing the right thing, we should do a lot more, but it's not a free lunch. Let's lastly talk about money. And monetary policy uh, the Federal Reserve are certainly heroes for doing what is basically wartime finance of guaranteeing credit in the private sector however I would say where the Federal Reserve has recently commented that it's not thinking about negative interest rates I would say if you're not thinking at all right now about negative interest rates you're not thinking clearly Uh, The experience in Europe and Japan really tells us very little because they haven't done it the right way. They haven't dealt with cash. And yet even so, all the new results on Europe are coming up that it has worked in its modest way. They only have slightly negative rates, not that very differently than monetary policy, ordinary monetary policy above above zero. So if you wanted to do more negative rates, what can you do? Well, one thing is you can... Get rid of cash completely so people can't hoard cash. China appears to be going at this very actively. Its new central bank digital currency it seems to be intended to replace cash. You could phase out large denomination notes, which would uh, create a greater scope for this. I've talked about that. And it's also possible to set up an exchange rate between electronic and paper currency, which I won't try to explain here. But the next speaker, Willem Bowder, wrote a seminal paper on this. Uh, I think it's not difficult to do negative rates. It's nothing compared to some of the things we're doing. It's market-oriented. It's not enough by itself. It should be considered. And let me finish on a positive note. Uh, I said the economy is in very bad shape. I'm uh, certainly not optimistic. However, on the bright side, I went to Harvard Yard yesterday, and the grass has never looked greener. (laughs)
0: I guess there may have been a lot of rain this this spring Um, not getting trampled the way it usually is I know Um, let me ask you this Um, you discussed um, the fact that the Great Depression lasted 10 years and that the 2008 crisis also lasted four to five years what um, why can't the, Why? Why? What causes these extended periods of time to get back to the uh, to equilibrium? In in your this time is different. You mentioned that um, it required a, a comfort with more leverage uh, in this returning to a more leveraged system and getting more bank capital. And today we have plenty of bank capital. Um, we've got plenty of Fed raised liquidity. What 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 is causing the that long term disequilibrium in the economy, assuming we get back to get back to work.
4: If, if we get back to work and have a V shaped recovery, nothing. But uh, I think that the pandemic. might we have much more expert people on the line. I think the pandemic will drag on. Uh over time uh people will not get to work, they will uh they'll run out of their savings, they won't be able to pay their mortgages, and we'll see variations of this from emerging markets everywhere all, all over the world it will create financial strain the you can come in and guarantee things to a point and the u.s. has tremendous capacity to do this the rest of the world uh, has less, but it, you just can't go on forever you can you know if you can uh, get things going fine but if you can't um, the financial strains will come to the fore
0: got it okay um, our next speaker is Willem Bwieder. Uh willem is the former global chief economist at Citigroup. Um, he is now a visiting professor at Columbia University. Willem, please go ahead.
5: Um, uh, thank you. Yes, I want to talk about um, uh, the need for uh, debt restructuring um, as a global uh, response to, um, uh, to, to the pandemic. I'm not talking debt standstill moratorium here, I'm talking about a debt jubilee. Um, the U.S. is, at the federal level, uh, by far in the strongest um, borrowing position of any country in the visible universe. Uh, and that is uh, likely uh, to remain that way. But even in the U.S., um, the uh, state and local Uh, governments have very little fiscal elbow room and they'll either be condemned to do nothing or um, engage in uh, risky uh, financial operations that may cause them uh, to default Uh, um, uh, probably sometime next year. Um, Outside uh, the US, the other advanced economies are all in significantly bigger shape. Um, We know uh, that the Eurozone may not even survive the existential crisis created by the ruling of the F- Federal German Constitutional Court. And uh, in addition, there's the unwillingness of the eight sort of Nordic new Hanseatic League members to contemplate any significant public debt mutualization. So Key member states like Israel, like Israel, like Italy, are severely constrained in their ability to issue additional public debt Um, if the ECB cannot use its public sector purchase program or its outright monetary transactions program. So um, they face the unpleasant choice of crashing out of the EMU and most likely the EU, or staying in and being constrained to implement fiscal stimulus of optimal size. In the US, We have a debt problem, but it's a private sector debt problem. And uh, in the U.S. and in many other advanced countries, much of the recent increase in private debt um, and future uh, private debt issuance is likely to be owned by public entities, including central banks, and it will never be repaid. For SMEs, the debt should be forgiven with the national treasury compensates the central bank for any losses that occur in the process. For listed companies, the debt should be turned into equity transferred by the central bank to the treasury. Uh, I would personally prefer non-voting preference shares just to minimize the central planning associations that the coronavirus crisis and the aftermath are bound to create. But um, even um, uh, regular equity is better than... Um, being uh, constrained uh, not to issue any debt at all um, uh, in the emerging markets, um, there is um, very little option to do anything without uh, debt forgiveness uh, or, um, or or its equivalent uh, the uh, granting of um, free resources, grants, in other words, a Marshall aid plan for um, for emerging markets. According to Brooklyn Institution, emerging markets and developing countries owe roughly 11 trillion in external debt, this, just under 4 trillion of debt service due this year. Um, what has been provided so far by they have debt relief by the World Bank and the IMF is the minimum. but the g 20 did is even more uh, ridiculous, Um, they agreed, with the exception of China, to suspend to the end of the year collecting interest payments on loans made to low-income countries. That is not help. That is an insult. So um, even the interest moratorium agreed by the um, G20 member states, uh, other than uh, China, is um, insufficient. Um, in 1996, the IMF and the World Bank launched the Heavily Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, of which 36 countries benefited. We need another version of that. So, the world has to treat additional, uh, uh, debt issuance as a tool for avoiding, um, awkward, um, sorry, has to, the, the world, has treated additional debt issuance, even by poorer countries, as a tool for avoiding awkward but avoidable choices, it is time to write off the debt that cannot be paid and to engage in more generous grants to emerging markets. Otherwise, most of humanity will find itself in uh, financial and low-income dire straits that will dwarf anything we've seen um, uh, since Um, since the 30s. I'll stop here.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for a very positive report. Um, Our next speaker is Chad Tireson. Chad is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago Booth School. Um, He's written on macroeconomics and market power. Uh, Please go ahead, Chad.
6: All right. Great. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, a good chunk of my research has been about documenting and explaining large performance differences uh, between businesses, even within narrowly defined industries. Performance can be measured in several ways profits, return on capital, or productivity. Uh, productivity is efficiency in production, the amount of output uh, that a company can create per unit input. Just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, uh, the typical manufacturing industry in the U.S., where industry is something like saw blade manufacturing or ready mix concrete, uh, we'll have some producer that obtains twice as much output from the same inputs as another producer in the same industry. And that's the standard amount of variance of, of performance. Now, alongside these big performance differences, is a constant churning process that goes on in the economy. Some companies are shrinking, while others growing. New businesses are starting up, while others are shutting down. Capital and labor are being reallocated among these companies. This churn is enormous. Uh, for example, while in you know before COVID hit, we might have heard in a typical month of a net job growth of 200,000 jobs in the U.S. Well, that was actually those 200,000 was a net. Effect of something like 6 million people being hired and 5.8 million people leaving their jobs. So there's just an enormous amount of churn that that that's going on all the time. And similarly, the number of companies uh, uh, that are forming and falling far exceeds the net change in the number of companies in the economy. Now, there's been a lot of work that shows this term process reallocates resources to, to higher performing firms. When that source of performance is higher productivity, that's efficiency in production, that's good for society because markets are acting in ways that let us get more output from the same resources. We become richer. Uh, to the, the extent to which this process works and focuses on productivity-based reallocations in particular, varies across industries but we found it in many different cases i have a paper for example that's founded in hospitals hospitals that are better at treating heart attacks for example will grow more in the future and treat more uh heart attacks in the future patients somehow figure out which ones are good and and start going more often to those kind of places now how does all this interact with covid well the current recession is likely to cause a lot of churn and a lot of exit It's going to be a big size that cuts down a lot of businesses. So the important question is how this churn process is going to compare to what normally happens, what I just described. Will the businesses that have to close be the ones that have lower productivity levels, or will they be closing for other reasons, not be correlated with productivity? Normally, churn is beneficial, but if so many companies are going out of business willy-nilly, it might not be. Indeed, it could be perverse. If companies are fundamentally good that can't get bridge financing and have to go out of business, that's going to be, uh, reduce productivity and make us poor. Or if companies survive only because they have a lot of monopoly power political connections, that's bad too. Uh, in, such process, in such cases, the turning process actually is going to make us worse off. And there's a related problem, we might also worry that some of the interventions taken now to stem job loss and business closings will prevent efficiency enhancing reallocations from happening that ought to happen. So suppose, for example, that going off into the future, people aren't going to want to go to movie theaters anymore or go at a much lower rate than they were before because of the crisis well, then we don't want to keep pouring resources into movie theaters. But out of concern over job losses and bankruptcies, we might be doing the opposite. Now, I don't know how the turning process is working right now. We're probably not going to be able to know very well until a while down the road. We can look back at who went out of business and what their attributes the attributes of those companies were before the crisis. It's going to be one of the first things I'm going to take a look at once the data is available. But there are some prima facie reasons to be concerned. Uh, For example, the PPP program seems like it worked better for certain types of companies in certain industries and locations in ways that aren't obviously correlated with business productivity. In other words, we might be rescuing the wrong businesses and letting the right ones slip through the cracks. A related but distinct issue to this is the effects of the crisis on industry concentration and market power. Uh, this is uh, some of the, uh, tied to one of the things that you might have read in preparation for this call. Uh, it's a fact that industry concentration has been growing over the past couple of decades. Concentration, by the way, is the share of industry activity accounted for by the largest firms. So when concentration goes up, it means the big companies have gotten bigger. Now, concentration isn't the same thing as market power. Um, that's been recognized by economists in an industrial organization, the field of economics that studies market power. Uh, it's been recognized for a while, but a lot of other economists and practitioners need reminding of that fact. Uh, firms become big because they have high productivity levels uh, and operate in a competitive market. Uh, that's a good thing. The industry concentrates, but we're better off for it. However, this process works only if growth is related to productivity. It relies on the churn process that I was just talking about working in the way that I said it's got to favor more productive companies. If instead you get the perverse situation where it's favoring companies with high market power political connections, then concentration will accompany greater monopoly power and will be worse off. Uh, We're definitely going to see an increase in concentration coming out of this crisis. I'm pretty sure of that. Small firms are going to go out of business at a high rate. The question is, again, whether that's going to be correlated with their productivity level or not. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Chad. I'll come Mm -hmm. back to you in the Q&A. Okay. Our, our next speaker is Joel Kotkin. Uh, Joel has been described as America's uber geographer. He has a new book that came out this week. It's called The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Joel, please go ahead.
7: Oh, great. Uh, great to be here. I, um, When I wrote the book, uh, obviously it was before this crisis, but what's interesting to me is how much it has actually Probably accelerated um, the process that I described, and actually i 'm very uh, pleased to uh, listen to the the previous speaker because he he touched on some of the things i 'd like to build up on one is um, w- what we 're seeing is the emergence of a of a structure which is very different than the structure we had throughout certainly the second half of the twentieth century, which is uh, a society where the social mobility was you know kind of accepted it, it was possible there was a lot of entrepreneurship there was you know people rising and falling. Uh, we now have a situation in which power is being consolidated in ways that um, that had been already happening but are going to happen much more rapidly for instance, I've been doing a lot of reporting on small businesses here in Southern California and also in Houston and what we're finding is that uh, the tech companies um, and those companies that have the ability to deliver things digitally are in a much uh, stronger position. Um, we also know that those large chains that are best um, uh, positioned for the on for for delivery and can survive this are are going to probably get a greater market share when when things are over. So what we have is this kind of uh, what I would call the oligarchy, you know, and that obviously at the top of that oligarchy are people like. Uh, like Apple and and uh, and Google, and they're just going to get more and more powerful out of this, and 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 that's been reflected somewhat in their stock performance as well. The second group that's really gained power is what I call the clarity, and that is the expert class, which um, no matter how many times they they say the wrong things or how much they have legitimate disagreements, the clarity seems to find a group of. People who have a science that they like, in other words, because it has the effects that they want it to have now I'm not in a position to judge what is what is right, what is wrong, but I do know that there are a lot of wrong projections um on climate and on and on this pandemic, which make people, you know be a good thing if people had a little bit of skepticism, but the clarity is very impo- powerful and is increasingly homogeneous in its worldview a few outliers here or there. The two groups that I'm most concerned with are what I would call are both what the French would call the Third Estate. The one group is the yeomanry, which is the small business community. And what I'm finding as I'm interviewing people is, a, many people in the small business community feel they say they cannot get PPP loans. They're particularly hard hit. by the the fact that a lot of them don't have a lot of banking relationships, if they have little or no banking relationships, some cases they don't; they're not citizens. In other cases, they're um, they don't speak English very well, and they certainly can't understand governmentese. Um, and so, there's a great fear. And uh, talk to people in Lomond Park, which is a uh, middle class African American community in East L.A., in Santa Ana, which is a predominantly Latino community. And there's a great concern that at the end of all this, all these businesses, which we're kind of sometimes of struggling, but we're providing employment and, and we're a part of the community, are, are closed, will never reopen, and if they get replaced, they'll be replaced by chains that are run by people who are more or less uh, responsive to Wall Street. And so there's a great deal of fear, and, 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 and as that yeoman class begins to get hurt, more and more, more and more people end up in what I call the surf class, which is people who will never own property, never own a business. And uh, the effects are particularly acute among young people who have diminishing property ownership and diminishing entrepreneurism, particularly in very expensive areas like California. Okay. So I well, think thank these you. are sort of the main. The main things that that I see happening, and I think there is a a fear, and I, I, again, that you it up perfectly, because the last speaker was very good about this, is that there's a fear on Main Street, if you will, that Wall Street's going to step in and, and buy things. I also, in talking to people who, let's say, uh, somebody who's an owner of a um, of a small rental p- property, uh, a family that maybe they own two buildings, a couple of uh, duplexes. Their tenants can 't pay the rent they 're trying to get rid of them they 're going to sell to a large well financed um, organization. We see one of the companies that 's doing really well is invitation homes uh, invitation homes because people want to move to the suburbs they don 't really want to be in the city increasingly um, they're going in and and becoming a very favored stock and a very uh, something that people really like um, from a financial point of view because they 're buying up. The houses of people who can't pay their mortgages, um, but still want to live in, in um, you know, a lot of people still want to live in, in suburban and small, you know, single family home environment. So essentially what the, the fear is that all the things that I've described in this sort of rise of, of neo-feudalism is something that is now being accelerated uh, by the pandemic. And I think that's very concerning.
0: Okay. Um, Our next speaker is Angela Stent. Angela is a professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University. She's also the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West, and with the rest. Uh, Angela, tell us what's going on
8: in Russia. Thank you for inviting me to be on, Larry. Um, So I'm gonna answer your three questions. Um, Will much lower oil prices undermine the Putin regime? So we all know that low oil prices under Gorbachev hastened the collapse of the Soviet Union, and that low low oil prices plus the financial collapse in 1998 eroded much of Yeltsin's support. We also know that rising oil prices from 2000 to 2008 made Vladimir Putin, in as much as he was able to consolidate his power, create a centralized authoritarian state as people's standard of living and his own popularity rose. So will low oil prices be his undoing? And I'm going to paraphrase the title of Ken Rogoff's book. This time, it's really different. Russia is better placed financially than it was at the start of the three previous oil price collapses since 1997. It's got $500 billion in reserve funds, and the government has the resources to keep the economy stable. And the flexible ruble policy means that the budget can withstand weaker oil revenues, relatively better than before. Nevertheless, prior to the ill-advised Russian-Saudi oil war at the beginning of March, and the coming of course of the COVID pandemic, the calculus was that $42 a barrel of oil was needed to balance the budget. Low oil prices will put a significant strain on the economy. And many believe that because of the effects of the pandemic and low oil prices, the Russian economy could contract by as much as 10% this year. Whether this undermines the Putin regime will depend on a number of other factors. Russia's public health system was fragile before COVID hit. For instance, 33% of medical facilities in the provinces have no running hot water or central heating. There's not nearly enough PPE, and physicians are increasingly protesting the woefully inadequate medical supply situation once you go beyond the major cities. And indeed, the Russian government is now drafting medical students with inadequate training to deal with COVID patients. Um, Second question had to do with public opinion. Um, Public opinion is pretty negative about the way the Putin government has handled the outbreak. The government doesn't get high marks for its handling of the crisis. The prime minister and the mayor of Moscow are actually doing better than President Putin by some polls. Russia has now the second largest number of COVID cases in the world, second only to the United States, roughly 260,000 today, with 10,000 new cases a day in the past week. Official Russian statistics show a low number Number of deaths, 2300. But last week's inquiry by the Financial Times and New York Times, using Russian data, claimed that the number of deaths was up to 70% higher. The Russian government, of course, has vigorously disputed this. Putin's popularity rate is down to 59%, lower than it's been in the entire 20 years that he's been in power. Worse still, only 28% of the Russian population trust him. Since the pandemic broke, he's rarely addressed his population. He remains sequestered in his home just outside Moscow. He ventured out alone last Saturday on the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II to lay a bouquet of roses at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Instead of presiding over the extravagant military parade, he had hoped to hold on Red Square. He's delegated the work of dealing with COVID to the mayor of Moscow, Sergei Sobyanin, and to the prime minister, Mikhail Mishustin, who himself has just recovered from COVID. Putin had to postpone the April 22nd constitutional referendum, which is supposed to enable him to stay in power until 2036, by which time he will have been in power 10 years longer than Joseph Stalin. So what I call the Putin forever project is on hold. Nevertheless, 47% of the Russian population say that they support these constitutional changes to keep him in power. But 47% also say they're dissatisfied with the way that the government has handled the pandemic. Uh, and the final question had to do with how well Russia can do testing and quarantining. So normally you would expect that in an authoritarian state, people will accept government control, quarantining, testing, etc., better than those in a more democratic society. But Russians also exhibit some of the very same characteristics as those in the United States who march with signs demanding their liberty and Skeptical of the government, there have been scattered protests throughout Russia against lockdowns and against the closing of businesses, including a large one in the North Caucasus a couple of weeks ago. With unemployment up to eleven percent and government support going mainly to Kremlin-connected businesses so far rather than small businesses, and general Russian skepticism about the government, there has been resistance to obeying government rules. There is also not enough, uh, nearly enough testing. Uh, Putin has not made this any easier by portraying himself as the one who wants to open up the economy and trying to shift the onus for restrictions to local governors and mayors. And that's not unlike, of course, the situation in the United States. I spoke to a friend of mine in Moscow yesterday, and it appears that in Moscow, which is the epicenter of this pandemic, most people are obeying the stay-at-home instructions. She's over 65, and no one over 65 is allowed to leave their home. You get fined for it. Food is ordered online and delivered, providing, of course, you have the money to pay for it. Younger people can go out with face coverings, and the metro is operating. But the apps, which the city wanted to use to track everyone's movements, are not working that well. So it's really a patchwork. So the bottom line is that the COVID pa- pandemic has called into question Putin's plans to stay in power till 2036. But, of course, there's so far no viable alternative to him. Andrew, thank you.
0: Um, Our next speaker is Dan Deal. He is a CEO CEO of Aircuity. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about the fresh air in the office?
9: Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me, Larry. Um, And last week I heard you were a Penn grad, so you'll be happy to know that they are a thought-leading implementer of uh, today's topic. Um, Love it. uh, Last last week's program left off discussing the importance of air. And um, so today, um, more precisely focusing on healthy air and our ability to get back to work, to school, to the gathering places like the and museums safely. And I know we're all wondering when this is gonna occur. And I think the answer lies largely in the ability of building owners and operators to provide healthy and safe environments. Um, Dr. Joseph Allen of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health recently put it, your building manager has more impact on your health than your doctor. So air quality is now a strategic imperative, not an operational one. Um, there are three fundamental issues that need to be improved. Effective ventilation, air filtration, and the control of humidity. Today, the uh, airborne spread of the novel coronavirus in buildings requires a re-examination of how we manage indoor environmental quality for all buildings and not just labs and operate, operating rooms. It's what we refer to in the industry as critical environments. Over the last several weeks, We've seen and heard a lot about how the virus can be spread more easily than previous ones via micro droplets that can linger in poorly ventilated spaces, often attached to small particles. So the key to reopening offices, schools and gathering facilities all around the world will be to provide cleaner air while also reassuring people that the air they breathe is healthy. We realize that uh, better air is not the only strategy and that occupant densities in buildings will likely change. Surface cleanings will become more frequent and pervasive. Um, But as uh, we are all experiencing, air is playing the major role in the spread of this and and likely future viruses. There is, however, great news. And I um, know we can absolutely improve, and we can do so dramatically. We have the technology and the tools necessary. Um, They're well beyond the proof of concept. Um, We just need to accelerate their adoption and change our priorities to focus on occupant health. Um, Traditionally, controlling the key factors, ventilation, filtration, humidity, has been reserved for those critical environments I spoke of. Uh, As an example, in 2007, um, we began working with the University of California, Irvine, and assisted them in developing the concept of smart labs. We actually did this in parallel with the University of Pennsylvania and a few other thought leaders like Eli Lilly. Um, The goal at that time was to install an air monitoring platform that provides the right amount of clean air where and when it was needed. And to give you the magnitude, labs typically require six to ten times the amount of air change rates than a normal commercial office building uh, uses. Um, The breakthrough concept is to add intelligent air quality monitoring in each space and combine that with software for an automated on-demand air management system. So the strategy provides the ability to provide more air where and when it's needed for maximum safety while making it far more energy efficient. Um, The results uh, were and then continue to be dramatic. University of California Irvine was able to cut their operating costs by 60% and they have the fewest safety incidents in the UC system. Uh, The building operators, environmental health and safety teams can also measure and verify performance continuously with a data-driven approach. This strategy was so successful, it was adopted by the Department of Energy and has since been deployed by thousands of lab facilities around the globe. A key point is that prior to COVID-19, there already was a movement to have building standards focus on human health and more pervasively implement the strategies that I'm talking about. You can research more on well buildings if you like, um, but we, that's a rich and deep topic that we won't fully get into now. Um, so as it relates to the three primary strategies, first, control particulate levels and harmful chemicals, VOCs, with more healthy ventilated air. As I mentioned, these microdroplets can remain in poorly ventilated spaces for some time—days, even weeks. So, put simply, small particles are just plain bad for your health um, as they enter the deepest part of your lungs. Um, but they also are particularly dangerous when viruses are in the air and attached to them. The World Bank um, recently reported uh, that atmospheric. Particulate matter, which is defined as having a diameter less than 2.5 microns, is highly significant predictor of the number of confirmed COVID cases and, and related hospital admissions. So particulates matter. Secondly, we need to address air filtration, which is a, is a good way to help um, control particulate levels. Buildings should begin immediately increasing their filtration up to a minimum efficiency reporting value of MERV rating of 13 or higher. This has not been a standard previously in non-critical environments. Higher MERV ratings capture these finer particles from both outside and return air delivery systems. Uh, also, very importantly, we up these standards. The third strategy is to control relative humidity to ideal human health ranges. I was presenting on a panel last week with uh, Dr. Keller. She's a pediatric oncologist and an architect. Um, that's a rare, rare combination. <laughs> she pointed out that there is a direct correlation between the human body's ability to fight viruses and humidity levels. Uh, There absolutely exists an optimal range, specifically between 40 and 60% uh, relative humidity that maximizes our ability to fight viruses and simultaneously negatively impacts the ability of the virus to be effective. Um, So if you were a mouse in an expensive expensive experiment and embalmed the mummy in a national archive or getting your hip replaced in an operating room, you would indeed have clean and healthy air. And since these strategies have been utilized in labs and hospitals effectively for decades and more recently are being adopted, uh, both new construction retrofit by fault leading owner occupiers, typically the large tech and banking employers, um, it's now the time to more broadly deploy these um, for all of our well-being and make it a strategic imperative. Uh, I do uh, believe this will and can make a dramatic difference in our ability not just to return to normal, but to return to a, a better um, than previous normal. And um, that that's one that's focused on human health, wellness, and a sustainable future. So thanks a lot for having me on.
0: Pleasure. Um, I'm going to go back to you in a minute. Um, our next guest is Steve Adler. He is the mayor of Austin, Texas. Go ahead, Steve. Steve, is your mute
10: button on? Yeah, sorry. Thanks for the opportunity to, to join. Fascinating afternoon. Uh, I'm going to address uh, the three questions that were uh, presented to me. The first being, what is the challenge for a city uh, during a pandemic? And there are numerous ones, and I'll, I'll list them. Uh, the first is uh, dealing with uh, the illness and the deaths. Uh, what we're seeing right now in our nursing homes uh, is, is is something that just is absolutely heartbreaking and, and heartbreaking because there seems to be little that we can uh, effectively do, uh, but also watching what's happening on construction sites and in our Hispanic communities and communities that are most vulnerable. Uh, so there's the actual uh, illness itself, but beyond that, it's the economic distress and suffering. We were at a 2.2% unemployment rate before this hit. We had 1,500 people uh, asking for unemployment insurance. Back in February, we're up to 80,000 people now. We're losing iconic restaurants and music venues. I fear we'll lose the artists and musicians uh, and the small businesses in our city The challenge is trying to decide between saving lives and opening up for economy, because there's a trade-off between those two things that you can't avoid, and that's the great moral question. Uh, It's dealing with the social, mental, and community challenges. Uh, Cities just are built on social interaction, it's the the morale of a city, Uh, but it's also dealing with the increased spousal and child abuse that is occurring and the increased mental illness uh, crises uh, that we're seeing in the city. Another challenge though that you welcome is maximizing the opportunity to really become more sustainable and resilient. Uh, we have the opportunity to address historic and institutional inequities than we are now, uh, but we have a chance to really do it in an ongoing and, and and permanent way that didn't present itself before. And for Austin, we have the challenges of being a blue city in a red state, the uh, politicization of this crisis, uh, the difficulty in being able to message to our community the the seriousness of the of the virus uh, that I fear may lead to a difficulty in mobilizing our community when we need to do it the most. I was asked the difference between the way we handled uh, this as compared to cities like New York and Chicago and I'd say that we were fortunate in Austin to be out front early. Uh, I canceled South by Southwest uh, the first week in March and at the time that I did that it was quite the uh, outlier, not so much now, but it was very traumatic at the time. It was canceling an, an event that had brought us uh, $356 million in uh, uh, economic activity about the size of a Super Bowl uh, just the year earlier. I knew when we did that that we'd be putting people out of work and and really impacting businesses that look to that 10-day period of time for their profit margin for the uh, year. Uh, it was in March 18th that um, Governor Cuomo was saying that uh, there would never be a stay-at-home order uh, in New York city, uh, it's a uh interesting how things change as, as events change. Uh, but at that point in time, our city was already beginning to do stay-at-home uh, voluntarily, because we were talking about it so much, trying to get our state to take statewide action. And when they didn't, Austin joined with the other large metropolitan areas in our city to to move forward ourselves. We uh, Acting in concert, were able to take uh, almost 60% of our state's population uh, and put them into a stay-at-home situation, uh, long before, uh, uh, our state was ready to, 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 to act on its own right now. I think the differences are, is that, uh, in Austin, we're focusing more on triggers than on benchmarks. Um, benchmarks uh, being the standards that you need to meet in order to be able to open up the economy. Um, We focused more on triggers because I I don't have much faith that we can actually predict what a change in behavior is going to result uh, in uh, impacting a a second surge uh, in our city. Um, That really what we have learned and earned over the last six to eight weeks is the ability to be able to predict what uh, curve we're on, if you trust the models. Uh, and models now over the last six to eight weeks can be more and more tailored to our situation in Austin. Uh, but to set triggers that we can establish in our community so that whatever behaviors we do, whatever we open up, uh, we can tell early enough that we're on the wrong path if we are so that the community can re mobilize. Uh, another difference is that we're a blue city in a red state, unlike New York and, uh, and, and Chicago. Finally, was looking. How's it looking going forward? We're going to raise taxes, reduce expenditures or run a deficit. We're in a relatively good place in Austin. We actually had larger reserves than our financial policies called for. So we were able to hit our reserves early and still be at our reserve limit. Uh, We're lucky we have a population larger than most that can work from home. Uh, We're still seeing increased business relocation interest, maybe even actually expanded. Uh, But we're probably going to do all those things. We have a hiring freeze. We're going to be reducing expenditures. We can't run a deficit except for capital expenses. Uh, So we're looking at taxes. And this is the heartbreaking thing for us. Uh, We were actually moving toward finally putting on the ballot public transit for our city, uh, increasing property taxes by 20% with this phenomenal electorate that we'll have in November. And now we don't know what to do.
0: I get that. Um, you know, The University of Texas uh, has its Austin campus, and you have um, thousands and thousands uh, of students there. Um, I asked the president of Brown University on our call two weeks ago um, about what sort of disciplinary action they would take if uh, students started uh, to socially gather outside off campus, and what they could do to to limit that, um, there are there are going to be a lot of different bad actors who are not going to follow, um, you know, the shelter in place or the social gathering or this you know physical distancing requirements. Um, what can the city of Austin do to protect itself from these bad actors?
10: Oh, we know we said from the very beginning is that there are not enough deputy sheriffs and police officers to enforce our way to the kind of decrease in physical interactions necessary to, to upset the spread of the virus. It really does take uh, community will and, and culture and, and, and expectation. Uh, real early in this uh, 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 pandemic, uh, we had a group of students at the University of Texas that uh, made the decision to go to Cabo. Uh, and also to uh, Mardi Gras, uh, and they came back, and that was one of our first large surges, uh, and it put the highlights uh, and the spotlight on university students uh, in in a way that you know perhaps was was even a little bit unfair. Uh, but we have always been dependent on, and will continue to be dependent on, the degree to which. Uh, we, it's, it's a cultural thing. And, and that's why the, the messaging and the communication is so incredibly important and, and why we're in, we're in trouble, uh, when, when, uh, my governor and I, uh, start expressing two different messages about how serious this virus is. And this
0: is another follow-up question. Um, a substantial portion of the industry is is the music and restaurant businesses um, located on 5th and 6th Street. What what are you going to do about that? Because they require a certain level of, of social gathering to be financially um, survivable. Um, what are you going to do to allow their uh, ongoing existence? Well, we need, we need
10: to help those folks survive. <laughs> Uh, You know, there's, they're they're incredibly creative, innovative people. So we have this uh, plethora now of evening concerts and and online uh, events, Um, but it's, but it's, barely tides anyone over. It's going to take direct relief. Uh, the, and that's what the council is using our federal dollars in part for, uh, and the the reserve capacity that we have, uh, with rental assistance for, for artists with, uh, the uh, shopping foreclosures on, on, on venues. Uh, this is where the the direct, um, uh, assistance is most needed because we have to be able to sustain these folks. Um, you know, As we start moving into an open economy, and I would imagine our governor's going to open up bars uh, this coming week uh, with occupancy uh, limits, and the truth is, is that I can't say, no matter how much intuitively or anecdotally I believe what that impact's going to be, I can't know for sure uh, how that's going to impact uh, the curves that we're on. I'm only going to know once we actually start seeing what happens with increased hospitalizations in the city, which is what we're focusing on, which is why I'm trying to educate the community on triggers, uh, so that if we end up in the wrong path, uh, we have time to be able to act, because I think those, those facilities are going to start opening. People want them to open. We've done too good a job in, 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 in lowering the, the curve. Uh, too many people think that this just is not serious.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Dan Dio, I wanted to follow up on a our- on a couple of your points. One was that um, the more important person in your life is your building manager and not your physician. Um, And you highlighted two aspects. One is air quality and humidity. You know, a number of us work in uh, large office buildings that is not controlled by the business but is controlled by the landlord. What can a tenant do to improve the quality of both its ventilation, its air filtering, and its humidity?
9: Um, that's a great question. Um, it, uh, it's <laughs> hard not to get too technical from an HVAC mechanical engineering perspective, but the simplistic version of it is um, landlords typically provide condition air to the to the tenant. And then the tenant space has its own control systems uh, on in their space or on their floor, so to speak. And so um, one is talk to your landlord about and and you're seeing a lot more of this happening. Um, uh, landlords providing clean air, um, you know, healthier air, increasing doing the thing that I spoke of, increasing filtration, and um, you know, validating the fact that they're providing clean air to the to the tenants. And then the tenants themselves can can look at in uh, the application that I spoke of, uh, improving uh, ventilation effectiveness on their floors that are in their spaces.
0: And then with regard to humidity. Um, You know, some people get these wall units that dump humidity into your space, but I've been told that that what happens with those water droplets is that they just fall to the ground next to the underlying uh, piece of equipment. What is the best way of creating a, a more humid environment throughout the office space?
9: Um, humidification is, um, is, is done in critical environments. Like I spoke about labs, vivariums, by general research spaces and ORs, and they always try to maintain these, these critical ranges. They're typically done at the air handling unit level themselves. Um, the units that you're speaking of, I, I can't actually, um, you know, directly speak to their uh, effectiveness. <laughs> um, but the ventilation systems that, I mean, the humidification systems that we'd be talking about. Will be more at the air handling and at the supply level. So in sp- specifically in um, vi- you know uh, peak viral seasons where you have low humidity outside in the winter months, et cetera, these viruses have proven to be um, much more effective. And so um, Dr. Um, Taylor, who we co-presented with last week, is really kind of uh, teaching a lot of our industry about trying to maintain that optimal 40 to 60% relative humidity range. And you want to do that um, at the what's called the air, the primary air handling unit system, that's where you're going to be most effective to get the water droplets to evaporate into the airstream and to be delivered effectively to um, to the conditioned space.
0: So that's really not at the tenant level, but more at the landlord level.
9: It's more at the yeah the, the yes yeah correct. In fact, some of the some of the some of the landlords that we're talking about are very worried now about people bringing in their own humidifiers and trying to do that on a on a spot basis, um, because then you run into a whole nother level of problems with uh, mold and you know higher humidity um, and, and higher humidity above 60 percent is not actually good either. So it should be really done at the landlord level
0: businesses are going to be under a lot of pressure to to find solutions that are economical what will it cost to uh per square foot to increase air quality and humidity to levels that are healthy
9: typical commercial office building you look at a dollar square foot is what we typically uh, range that at and um I, i typically try to say it's not actually an additive cost um what you find in all construction and whether it's renovations or new construction, it, it's all about choice and it's all about selection. And and there, the industry is always going through choice. And there's a term called you know, value engineering, if you will. I sometimes refer to it as devalue engineering, <laughs> um, but it's all about choice. It's about, um, you know, uh, prioritizing one thing over another. And I think that is one of the points I was trying to make is that, you know, when you focus on human health and wellness, which the well-building movement is trying to do, um, you really just make it a priority. And so you you prioritize that over something else. And so hopefully it wouldn't be an additive cost. And and as I also pointed out, the University of California the use of air is the largest efficiency opportunity we have. So, this is there's a huge sustainability, energy efficiency component to what we're talking about. And to use air more effectively is also to and manage it more effectively is also a huge opportunity for improved efficiency and sustainability in the built environment. Thanks, Dan.
0: Andrew, a question for you. Um, we spoke um, in a, one of our first calls with an expert on Africa and the African economies. And what they said was is that in Africa, they don't have many old people, and they certainly don't have the hospitals, and they certainly can't afford to sit home quarantined. They have to go to work. And because they have to go to work, they're going to get sick, and then some people will die, but it will they have a young population, so it is what it is. To what extent is that also the case in Russia? Um, do you expect them to... Uh, Outside, maybe Moscow, not to engage in quarantines, that they'll just continue to do business as usual, um, and that people will just, you know, will get sick and will potentially die.
8: I think there's definitely some of that will happen there. Um, you have to remember, of course, since the life expectancy in Russia is considerably lower than it is in a country like the United States, they do have fewer older people, and so um, that may affect the, the death rate there. But, yeah, because of the inadequate um, medical facilities in much of the country, again, outside the big cities, they're, you know, they're not enforcing as uh, strict rules, in, and particularly in the kind of far-flung areas of Russia, people are more or less doing whatever they want to do. And so it's going to look very different than it does um, in, um, you know, in more developed societies.
0: When you get outside the big cities, you're looking at something with extremely low density. And usually what the spread is, is related to both density um, and, you know, physical distancing. So should we expect it to be now as problematic? Is it predominantly agrarian? Um, Is it predominantly uh, industrial and mining? And that's, you know, oil production that isn't very, you know, people to people.
8: Right, so a lot of it I mean some of it is oil and mining, particularly if you get out in the Russian far east where you have uh, you know all of the oil fields, some of it's still agrarian, uh, particularly in the more in the southern parts of russia so but in none of those areas yeah is the is the population or the proximity of people to each other that close you you gave a um a popularity or for Putin at around fifty nine percent
0: which you know, by American standards, just remain would be off the charts, would be huge, still be continuing like the most popular president of all time. Um, so, I mean, maybe they're maybe they're actually not telling the truth to the person who's asking the question as well. I don't know, uh, out of fear. But if it were true at fifty nine percent, doesn't that inc- suggest to you that um, he is going to be whatever the words is reelected or constitutionally allowed to continue his reign for an extended period of time?
8: I think he i mean I think the odds are very much that he could be it 's just that we 're seeing cracks now, so you know these popularity numbers the the fifty nine percent is the one remaining independent polling organization in russia levada the The other polling organization that 's closer to the Kremlin has him with higher numbers anyway it 's more interesting to the to look at the how much trust you have in him and how competent you think he and the Kremlin are in doing and dealing with what they 're doing, but he probably will the, you know, remain there. He, they probably will have the referendum at some point. They're not talking about doing it by, um, uh, you know, right in. People will mail in the ballots instead of going to the polls. So he probably will emerge from this still in charge. But I think there may be more questions about his handling of it. And there may be other people, more kind of junior people, questioning about whether this model, what they call the vertical of power, you know, having this president, who's pretty powerful, um, where people below him are not given very much uh, authority to make decisions, whether that really works in a situation like this, because as we can see, it's really the mayor of Moscow who's, and the prime minister who are taking most of these decisions. Right.
0: Now, sometimes when Putin gets in trouble, he acts out, like inv- invading a, a neighboring country. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's not that likely in this situation?
8: I think it's not too likely in the situation. I think, you know, what they're doing now in Ukraine or Syria or Venezuela or Central African Republic, they're doing that on the cheap. It doesn't cost them that much. They're not going to have that money in the state, much money in the state coffers to go on in some new um, expedition. So I think when you look around um, uh, Russia's neighbors, people thought maybe there would be some problem with Belarus. I don't think that we'll see a more active or aggressive Russian foreign policy at the moment, at least while they're going through this pandemic. Thanks, Angela. Uh, my next question is
0: for Joel And Joel, you've written a lot about um, the automobile, about suburban life, um, about a desire for low density. Um, do you think that this COVID 19 epidemic is going to accelerate uh, or dec- maybe I should say decelerate the urbanization trends in the United States and encourage people to um, find cheaper real estate outside city centers? Well, um,
7: first of all, um, the work that I was doing
0: before this
7: was showing an acceleration of growth in several different areas. A, suburbs were growing much faster. New York, Chicago, L.A., all lost population. Migration from places like San Francisco um, is beginning to, to go negative. Um And this was happening before covid there's no way i think covid makes dense urban places more attractive i don't think it will put the end to them and i don't think it will mean the decline of every big city but i think it's going to be very very difficult when you add in particularly if you add in social distancing i don't know how big office buildings work i don't know how the elevators work i don't know how the transit system works Many of the great things about a place like New York, and as you can tell from my accent, this is my hometown, um, are things that you can't do with social distancing. So I think that, that also there's going to be a considerable belief, and you know, people can debate about it, but the fact that this pandemic was so concentrated in urban centers, and most particularly in New York, in, in and followed to a large extent those areas that have a high density, um, but more importantly, what we call exposure density, that is that what they're living in crowded places. You know, Manhattan, for instance, wasn't as hard hit because it's made up of basically childless, affluent people who could work at home, many of whom were, had country homes. It was terrible in areas, particularly like Queen, parts of Queens, parts of Brooklyn, which is where my family is actually from, and um, that is a combination of the transit high density in the households other words, multi-generational houses so where people could infect each other and um, to, and of course to a very large extent and I think several speakers have raised this poverty one thing we find is that it is the poor parts of cities that have been overwhelmingly hit whether it's New Orleans or Houston or New York or Los Angeles even those cities like LA which have been hit much less hard Um, The poor um, sections are the ones that have been hit. So my sense of it is that cities are going to go through a very difficult transition, and I've been working um, with my colleague Richard Florida about how those cities can adjust and also to make the the very clear case that... uh, People are going to probably continue to want to live in cities, but they may want to live in less dense and generally smaller cities. And that's that's where all the migration trends that we have are showing so far. And then if you talk to the real estate people and the commercial real estate people, they'll tell you that th- these trends are beginning to show themselves in the marketplace.
0: And then this is a follow-up question about the automobile. Um, the automobile has was considered you know, a bad actor historically, traffic, um, and we, we really emphasized and encouraged uh, public transportation. And then Uber has also been a challenge to the uh, single person's uh, car. Um, with COVID, um, mass transit, particularly as you were describing, the 7 line coming in from Queens into Manhattan, was where a lot of the um, pathogens was uh, festered. Um, do you see this as a huge demerit for mass transit and do we think it's going to go on the decline well the
7: the the reality is it was going in decline before COVID. um in los angeles the second largest metropolitan area in the united states with great weather and and high densities it we have um our share of transit is less than it was in 1990 before we spent 20 billion dollars on trains so I mean it was already hurting I would argue Uber and Lyft have actually probably hit transit more than anything else that's one of the reasons why we started to see transit flatten and decline even in transit oriented cities because people were taking the ubers um you know and as for the car I mean look I think the cars can be cleaner I think they are getting cleaner you can you know they but the reality is you know you can denounce them all you want but there 's been a a, a freedom that 's been given to people an ability to choose what they want to do, how many people really want to give up their cars and if they're, and if their um, option is you, uh, that the only way you can reasonably give up your car right now, really would be to live in a very dense transit uh, city, which is probably not what you want to do. So I, I think there are going to be some long-term solutions. My colleagues I work with at MIT have been working on this a lot, which is autonom- eventually we could have self-cleaning, solar-powered, autonomous vehicles taking people around. Those long-term solutions um, probably are going to outlast and and, and defeat any attempt to try to turn the United States into a nation of strap hangers. We've been trying to do it since Jimmy Carter was president and it doesn't seem to work very well.
0: Thank you, Joe. Uh, Chad, you're up. Uh, a couple questions for you. There were a lot of firms that were, uh, either extremely marginal profitability before this started. Um, they're going to be extremely challenged to get capital and maintain their workers. Um, what, what, What's going to happen to these firms, whether it be small firms um, or large firms? You know, Japan had these zombie firms for a number of years who were able to access capital um, and at very, very low interest rates. We have those, and we're going to have going forward, very, very low interest rates. So would you expect zombie firms to survive, or do they need new, new capital to reboot afterwards, and therefore they're going to have a demise?
6: I think, um, I think there will be some zombie... On the other hand, you know, a lot of the zombie in Japan was banks needing to pr- preserve their balance sheets uh, to do window dressing on it. There isn't, I hope, the same sort of motive going to be going on here. There's, no- <clears throat> You sort of needed two parties to tango with the Japanese situation here. It's just going to be the the business itself. I think at some point, they're going to have some expenditure that needs to be made, and that's going to push them over the edge, and that's where they're going to close. Um, I'm not even—I wouldn't even worry about that so much if I thought a business of equal acu or better acumen was going to come in and take their place, especially if you know you think about a restaurant or one of these you know small businesses that have naturally high churn anyway. Um, the thing that makes me nervous about that is we're three, four decades into a long, long run trend of lower and lower business formation rates. And so it's not at all clear that there's sort of going to be a reserve set of folks waiting to to hop into opportunities that these closures will open up. Um, that might be my biggest concern about what's going to happen with the, these sort of marginal businesses leaving.
0: You know, a lot of small businesses are retail establishments. Um, needless to say, Amazon uh, is crushing it. Um, at our last call, Scott Galloway mentioned that not in their wildest dreams would Amazon executives have uh, hoped for a $2 trillion payment to its customers and closing 98% of its competitors. So clearly, Amazon is, is going to hugely benefit from the current crisis. Um, but it, it gives them an additional scale and an ability to really challenge existing retail space and upcoming future retail space. Um, how do you think about that?
6: I think that's exactly right. I mean, the trend has been going on, obviously, with the shift to e-commerce for a while. It really, and I've done some work on this, it it wasn't a big factor in the first decade of, of the century. Uh, but since the crisis, it's been the overwhelming driver of retail dynamics is this shift to online commerce. I think we're just going to see a further acceleration of it. I sort of think of the the crisis as basically mo- moving two or three or maybe even four years worth of trends forward to as many months. And I think we're just going to see an excel- we'll see an acceleration of what would have happened otherwise. But that's exactly right. Amazon's going to get bigger and a lot of marginal uh, retail is is going to leave.
0: Ben Bernanke wrote a book on the Great Depression, and one of his chapters had to do with the uh, disembowelment of small firms during the Great Depression and the fact that uh, banks would predominantly only lend to the larger customers. Um, Do you think that the capital markets will fail again and not provide small businesses with needed capital and oversupply capital to the larger firms?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't have a great sense of that. I think that's one thing you would – You know, any time that risk appetites go down, obviously there's going to be a shift in that direction, and one would imagine that's going to happen to some extent or the other. I don't know, you know, in terms of trying to benchmark the magnitude of that, whether that's going to be substantially different than we saw during the great financial crisis, which was – 10 years ago, which was plenty big. But I, I don't know if this – if sort of the financial knock-on effects are going to be as big as the employment effects have been, I guess, is the way to think about it. But that's something to, to keep an eye on.
0: Um, final question. You, um, you've been looking at market power and concentration within industries. Um, it seems like the airline industry had become oligopolistic uh, with three major airlines – Um, they're now, you know, on the margin of probably all going bust. Um, And if they do, and the government has to bail them out, should they use this as an opportunity to maybe split up those three airlines into six? Oh,
6: wow. That's a good question. I I don't know, but here's one answer. If, If the amount of air demanded air travel falls persistently by a large amount, and you could imagine it will certainly until I think effective treatments or a vaccine is available. Three airlines might be too much to serve the demand, or at least it would be enough to serve in a reasonably competitive market. If we get back to the size of the airline economy in January 2020, you know, could the would the market be more competitive with six? Yes, would I say? The government's going to be a great designer of that new market. I, I'm not so sure about that either. But right now, I think the biggest concern is in how competitive it's going to be. Is like how many how many firms are really going to be needed for the future at this point? Anyway, it's really unclear to me and, until they figure out some way to make people feel safer. Thanks.
0: Willem, um, you, talk, you spoke before about the crisis affecting our poorest emerging market countries. Um, my question for you is, you know, you, you can't get blood from a stone. So whether or not, um, you know, the IMF or um, we went directly to some of these poor emerging markets, um, they're not going to be, be able to pay uh, if, uh, under a lot of circumstances. What does it mean... To, to restructure relative to just them going into some sort of non-payment default?
5: Um, well, non-payment default leaves um, legal claims that will make uh, future ventures into the debt uh, markers by these countries extremely problematic, even when they would be uh, justified. So it is much better to have a clean break and to write off uh, in a legally um, recognized way uh, the um, uh, uh, a large chunk of the debt in these countries that indeed will, are unable to pay uh, and won't pay, but uh, could still um, suffer uh, major problems of market access and um, forced... Uh, closure of uh, external uh, deficits if they don't get the remedial uh, support from official creditors, um, from um, international creditors, IMF and the World Bank, uh, they will have to uh, cough up as well, and uh, of course, private creditors.
0: In our, our last call, we had Ashoka Modi speak about troubles in the Eurozone. He was particularly concerned about Italy's ability and willingness to pay. Um, yes. But you've spoken, you've spoken to our groups a number of times about the problems associated with the politics where the northern countries have to subsidize the south. Uh, it appears that this virus, at least in its first initial stages, has hit the south much harder than it has in the north. Um, do you think this will be an existential threat to the Eurozone?
5: The Eurozone is
0: a badly designed
5: uh, construct uh, that could have uh, collapsed without the benefit of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, The fact that uh, the country that has really been hardest hit uh, in uh, the Eurozone by the COVID crisis is Italy, um, which is the country least able to engage in the kind of size of fiscal stimulus needed to minimise uh, the pain uh, makes, uh, I think, a an exit uh, by Italy um, with Italy walking out rather than uh, being pushed out uh, more likely than it has been um, really since. Uh, the um, uh, eurozone was put together. Yes, uh, and this is quite independent uh, in a way of the um, uh, judgment by the European, uh, so by the German uh, constitutional court. That simply puts limits on what uh, the European Central Bank can do. Uh, What is necessary, I think, for um, Italy to uh, remain a um, viable member of the Eurozone is a a mutualization of debt that goes well beyond uh, the ECB uh, buying up Italian debt through the Bank of Italia, actually, as it happens, Um, uh, and it requires, I think, a a significant transfer of real resources from those north of the Rhine uh, to uh, to Italy and uh, other uh, badly afflicted countries like, of course, uh, Spain, which has been uh, right up there in terms of country damage with COVID-19. But there is very little sign that um, uh, the sort of... Uh, bloody mindedness of the uh, new Hanseatic League, uh, no, the eight uh, small self-righteous Nordic countries, is going to change uh,
0: uh,
5: anytime soon. So I'm, I'm very concerned.
0: There are some commentators who have encouraged a change in American policy from a, a quarantine for all to a quarantine only of the elderly. And if they, if we move in that direction prior to the advent of vac- a vaccine, um, do you see the possibility that we could have some sort of U-like recovery, or do you see a, just long-term, uh, intermediate-term damage?
5: Well, it depends how well one can enforce it, right? If uh, one can test, you need to... Uh um, this would, this this policy might have uh, uh, a better chance of success. And, you know, age is easily tested for, so you can um, force the uh, the old to to self isolate. But uh, for uh, a safe return of the majority of the labour force uh, to uh, non-stay-at-home working, we need more. Uh, than uh, just the old to self-isolate, we need uh, both uh, you know, uh, tax uh, testing for the uh, vaccine positivity and tax uh, and testing for exposure uh, uh, to the virus uh, and the contact tracing that goes with it. So um, without that, I think we you know. Uh, isolate and safeguard, maybe against their will, uh, uh, the elderly population, but there's no material impact on, uh, on economic activity as I see it.
0: Excellent. Uh, Ken Rogoff, question for you. Um, you know, in moments like these is when cash gets uh, more hoarded, um, we've noticed a sharp increase in the price of gold coins um, and hoarding by individuals to, to use this cash. Um, in, in other words, in times where banks, financial institutions, and credit card companies are not able to function as they once did, cash takes on a very important uh, role. How do you think about you know, the benefits of, of, of cash in an economy in trouble times and how should we weigh that in non trouble times well first of all the use of cash in legal
4: tax compliant retail transactions is collapsing by most you know measures that are out there and i think it's accelerating a trend that's been underway for quite some time that uh, cash is being used only in relatively small transactions, again, for legal tax compliant transactions. Uh, uh, the vast majority of cash is in large denomination notes all over the world. The vast majority of it is not because somebody's scared of a bank, they're scared of the tax collector. It may very well be in a world where taxes probably are going to go up quite a bit. Uh, it, all over the world, certainly in the United States, that will raise the demand for trying to get around it. Um, so, you know, the, there, there's the question: is how to balance allowing people privacy, but to how much do you really want to allow people to buy uh, twenty million dollar apartments in Trump Tower, you know, with a suitcase of cash? I mean, these are uh, these are questions. I think the regulation of it has been. Very haphazard and
0: thoughtless, uh, and it needs to be reevaluated. Um, in your appendix, you mentioned the idea of using interest-bearing T-bills as currency, as a potential currency substitute. Uh, maybe it was, it was actually recommended by a, a third party. Um, to the extent that we do build general ledgers, um, can you imagine a world where instead of if, instead of giving cash, you use some sort of uh, T-bill equivalent to Cash, uh, pass back and forth electronically. Well, first of all, there's Treasury Direct
4: today that anyone can sign on to in probably a few minutes, and you can hold as little as a hundred dollars and as much as twenty million dollars, and that already can be used in a lot of in, in a lot of ways. The Treasury doesn't advertise it, I think, because they're worried about disintermediating uh, banks. But it's also true that the US dollar Treasury bills do serve a significant liquidity function. There estimates that it's really quite significant and been growing in part because the financial markets have gotten so big. Uh, possibly another reason uh, that the demand for dollar might be undermined over the next several years is that we're entering this period of fierce deglobalization that Probably will also lead to less financial globalization, but um, yeah, yes, absolutely. For the U.S., that's true to some extent that the uh, Treasury bills form for big
0: transactions uh, a cash-like role already. And God forbid there's some sort of a cyber attack uh, that challenges our financial institutions. If we if we don't have physical cash, um, do we leave ourselves open to a much to a, some sort of crisis? You know, look, I mean, the people who have physical cash
4: now uh, largely, there lots of uh, studies about how much cash ordinary people are holding, even if you count in their cars and, uh, you know, buried in a cookie jar somewhere, it's maybe uh, for the average American a few hundred dollars, but there's, imagine average American family, but there's certainly two or three thousand dollars for every man, woman, and child circulating in the United States. Um, so uh, we will, we you know, if we have a complete generalized breakdown in all electronics,
0: uh, I don't think cash is going to save us. Fair enough. Um, I want to talk about negative interest rates for a second. Um, you know, it's something that we're not used to. It it, it seems to turn. Um, most economic activity on its head. Uh, savings is problematic um, and future consumption is if it's where you want it. Um, let me give you an example. If you have uh, interest rates at negative 2%, you can invest for 50 years and lock in a 65% loss immediately 50 years forward. Um, and that will encourage people to you know, reduce its savings and to consume immediately. Is that problematic from a societal perspective to undermine some of those social mores that encourage the young to save for when they're older? Well, I think
4: I hear that objection, but I think it's a little confused. First of all, um, if you use aggressive negative, deep negative interest rate policy, at least in theoretical models, it raises longer term interest rates because this is the uh, bazooka that can create inflation in this environment and so you're not necessarily you know, raise, uh, lowering nominal long-term interest rates. You raise the value of housing, you raise the value of stocks, you raise the value of assets, and the broader consumption savings decision involves all of those things. Uh, the central bank does not control over any longer term the average level of real interest rates, which is what we think really underpins savings. And we've had negative real interest rates due to inflation over long periods, uh, many times. I actually think this is something of a non sequitur. Um, it is certainly the central banks will have to explain it, uh, but uh, I don't I don't consider this, a, you know, a, a theoretical problem at all. But of course, uh, even though we've had inflation, and people, by the way, would be pretty mad about getting inflation right now. Although I think it would be kind of a good thing to have moderate inflation. That would be a fine alternative to negative interest rates, but I, I don't see how it's possible without having some negative interest rates. Thank you.
0: Uh, Dick DeVoe, um, there's, we're going to see in real time um, a lot of studies done about COVID-19, about treatments, about vaccines. Um, and there's going to be some good science and some bad statistics associated with these studies. Um, how should we be looking at the quality using our statistical insights to evaluate? Um, I'll call it bad science.
3: Well, that's a great question. Let me let me back up for a minute and just point out something that struck me while while listening to to everybody today is that we have people like me and the economists who are academics who look at these models and can talk about the impact of a, of a certain model. And by the way, I want to have a shout out to your website, which has a, a wonderful simulation of, of some of these models and you can play with them. But I just want to contrast that with uh, someone like Steve Adler, who my heart goes out to, and my hat goes off to who has to deal with the reality of what happens with these different models models and the failures of them and what happens with different policy um, choices. So, you know, you're asking, how do do we deal with bad science and how do we deal with, with all of this uncertainty? And I think basically we're going to deal with it the same way that we've always dealt with it. We're just going to put one foot in front of the other and see what's working and what's not working and, and uh, make the best of it. I don't think there's a, I don't think there is a, kind of see here. I don't think there's a solution that somehow gets away from from the, the process.
0: Um, you, you mentioned the George Box discussion about all models are wrong, but some are useful. And then you also referenced um, that the fact that the R in these epidemic models um, vary by country, maybe it vary by region, vary by um, behavior. Um, you know, what if you were going to um, advise you know the mayor of austin on on how to think about that how how would um, how would you help him estimate R for Austin as an example?
3: Well, you just have to use the local data rather you know the question is what level of aggregation are we talking about? And the data is not great at any level, but the more you can get locally, the better you're going to do. I mean, look at the, look at the curves right now, uh, the New York Times today, the curves for New York, uh, which, which is really impressive of, of what they've done versus uh, the curves for the, the country as a whole. I mean, it's that the more data you can get, the more local data, relevant data you can get, the better off you're going to be.
0: Okay, thank you, Jack. Um, shifting back to Jacob, Jacob, um, everybody says young people should return to work and old people should stay home. And similarly, drug and vaccine trials should be run on young people. But old people have fewer quality, just year's left than young people. Should we factor that in, in the consideration of their own personal choices?
2: Sure. So, well, the first thing I would point out is that the value of your life as a young person um, may be longer, but your value of the life as an older person is probably pretty darn important to you as an older person. So I think there's some danger in taking into account long-term life expectancy in making these sorts of decisions. Um, but I want to open it up to a broader question. Um, we now hear about two different conversations. One conversation is about the value of social distancing and contact tracing, and the other model is about herd immunity. And I think it's clear that if we believe in our better angels, social distancing and contact tracing is going to be the better model to work. But if we believe in our worst instincts, herd immunity may be an inevitable consequence of people, and particularly younger people, not being willing or able to quarantine. So I think the real significant challenge we have here is going to be less in making those judgments in an ethical way, but in somehow acquiring social or public buy-in from younger people. None of the methods you hear about in public health are going to work unless younger people are willing to take part in the process. And I think while we've done a fairly good job of educating older people about the importance of staying home, we've really done a poor job of educating younger people about why and how this matters to them until this fits them most starkly. And to give you a sense of of the lack of information out there, I was at the convenience store across from the hospital the other day, and I heard a young woman explain to the clerk very confidently why he should not cover his nose with his mask, that he wouldn't get sufficient air into his lungs. And listening to that, I realize that we really do have an education deficit, particularly among people in their 20s and 30s.
0: The other interesting thing about the young is that um, they probably won't get sick, or if they do get sick, it won't be that harmful for them. Um, you see in some of the European countries, they've opened up kindergartens uh, in some of the lower schools. Um, is that something we should consider is, you know, the efficacy of Of letting kids go back to school, letting children socially gather um, in a context of they're not really at risk, and we really need to just protect people who are at risk. I mean, I think some of that education reflects that a utility preference function they care more about themselves than they do about some elderly person they don't know.
2: Yeah, and the problem is I think it's, it's easier to see the direct impact on yourself and harder to see the larger impact on other people, um, both in the immediate sense that you don't realize um, that you're going to affect your grandmother or your teachers. And we don't know to what degree young people who are asymptomatic um, can spread the disease. We also have some evidence now that even people who seem asymptomatic early on, like the multi-inflammatory syndrome, which we're seeing with children in New York City, um, may occur in younger people. But I also think people who are younger need to understand that If older people aren't protected and aren't able to take part in public life, eventually the economic and social consequences will fall back on them in terms of places to live and jobs. But finally, I want to point out that I think we have this artificial dichotomy, thinking young people versus old people. The reality is that very few young people, particularly in a place like New York City, live in isolation or live in a vacuum. You can't tell young people, socialize amongst yourselves, don't socialize or interact with old people when they live with their grandparents. And that's what happened in Italy, and it's what's happening here in New York.
0: Um, in our previous calls, we've had discussions about testing and tracing. Um, and the technologists of the world have been thinking about ideas to put straps on your wrists or, or whatnot so that we can evaluate your breathing, your temperature, your heartbeat. Um, but this will be a significant challenge to our sense of privacy. Do you expect pushback or ethical issues associated with this privacy loss?
2: Very much so. There was a recent Washington Post poll that showed that 50% of people would be unwilling to comply with uh, an app that did contact tracing. Um, And my guess, based on what I know of people, is the numbers are much higher among younger people who will resist. Um, Partly because people don't trust that the contact tracing information will only be used in public health. They're afraid that if somebody commits a crime in their building, they'll be interrogated Or most of us, or many of us might not want the authorities to know who visited our apartment at 3 in the morning. Um, And people are also concerned that if they do test positive or do have a contact, um, they're going to be put in a cell somewhere isolated in a way that is uncomfortable or economically not protected. Um, So we need to have a way to make sure that people who are quarantined are both economically provided for and feel comfortable during that process or what people are going to do. It's they're not going to go out and say, I won't take part in your process. They're going to get a separate cell phone or turn their cell phone off or put it in their car and use someone else's phone when they need to do things that are higher risk, and we'll have lots of false information.
0: Okay, great. Um, Lisa, Lisa, back to you. It's been a long time since we spoke. A couple questions for you. Um, I think it's important that we physically distance, but don't socially distance. Um, and that's going to require an extensive use of, of social media to accomplish that end. But we've heard studies in the past that said that social media is uh, creates stress and anxiety. Um, which way does it fall? Is social media a source of good or a source of bad as it relates to stress and anxiety?
1: What we see is that the experience people have on social media often, um, especially for teenagers, mirrors what's happening in their social lives in real life. So the data we have on this show us that if teenagers have happy, supportive relationships when they're with their friends, not online, that's what tends to be replicated online, that they are deepening those friendships and enjoying them in a virtual space. And teenagers who struggle socially or who may find themselves in a lot of conflict or isolated socially. When they're online, they tend to have more trouble, get into more conflict, or spend time talking to people they don't really know in real life. So I have been less worried about teenagers and others who are using the online environment in lieu of otherwise positive social relationships I'm more worried about those who were already struggling socially trying to transfer that over to solely an online environment. Um, That's been my bigger concern.
0: In a previous call, uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, mentioned that this extraordinary environment will be good for children under 18 because it will cultivate a sense of gratitude and build anti-fragility. How do you think about, um, you know, toughening up, our young people by putting them into these sort of much more challenging situations
1: well there's something to it and one of the things I think we can draw from this is to return to what mental health means and I think there's been a growing misunderstanding about what constitutes mental health and it's this idea that you are mentally healthy if you are feeling calm and relaxed all the time and that is not something that psychologists have ever believed Our belief is that you're mentally healthy when you're having the right feeling at the right time and you're able to weather it. And so I do think there may be benefits for us to step back, reconsider how we talk with young people around mental health and help them appreciate that if they are feeling anxious or fearful or stressed, they're probably having the right reaction and then help them discover the strengths that they do have to weather situations like this, and we do know from data that when people are able to find their way through an emotionally difficult situation, they are more resilient in the face of new difficulties.
0: Um, We only have a couple minutes left, and um, what I've done on some of the calls is I've asked each of the speakers um, to say something optimistic about what's going on. Very often we get caught up in, in in the Avalanche of bad news and that's uh, going on both on this call and what's going on in the real world. so if I could go to each person and ask them what they're optimistic about, I'd appreciate it. Lisa, I'm going to start with you what have what have you seen in this that we is, uh, is a breath of fresh air and a reason for optimism?
1: Well, we do see tremendous creativity, both in terms of how people are reaching out to support one another, how we're celebrating the graduations of young people, people being incredibly good to their neighbors, and even strangers offering to help with grocery shopping. I think that one of those sayings of um, adversity doesn't build character; it reveals it. You know, times like this also reveal how good people can be. Thank you, Lisa.
0: Jacob, what about you? What can you, what do you see optimistic?
1: Sure. I, I've seen an
2: increasing number of people, both colleagues and patients, uh, choosing health care processes and making living wills, which, while it may sound morbid, it's actually a wonderful thing, because then when crises do occur, whether it's now or at some point in the future, they'll have had harder conversations at the right time rather than the wrong time.
0: Fair enough. Dick, um, using your statistical eyes and ears, what, what do you see optimistic out there?
3: Hi there. Thank you. First of all, I'm going to agree with Lisa that uh, I've been really impressed with my students and how they have just been uh, creative and, and forming all sorts of new ways of interacting with each other. But I think in terms of society, this pause that we're going, I think it's just been a great Way for us to rethink our whole consumerism and our whole way of life. And I think that this is going to force us uh, That's that's optimistic. You know, it could be one of those things that goes away It's kind of like when you come back from a trip and you have all sorts of resolutions And then that goes away in five minutes, but I think this may may actually do something. That's that's my optimism
0: Yeah, that reminds me I need to work out after this call Ken, uh, what do you see as optimistic? Well, if I can pick on something narrow, it's that a great deal of uh,
4: post-2008 financial crisis policy was predicated on nothing bad would ever happen again. That was often explicitly stated we could just, you know, wait for 20 or 30 years to fix things. And this will make us on our toes and more flexible and more aware that the other shoe can drop and we're not going to melt and we need to be prepared for it.
0: Thank you. Willem, do you have anything out to say?
5: Well, um, I think the, the best news is that things could have been worse. Right? But um, beyond that, I've been very impressed by uh, the opportunities offered by this combination of virtual and face-to-face teaching at universities, which should increase their range, the ability to reach Interested parties uh, from uh, a painful local equilibrium to a truly global one. And then, uh, especially in the US, uh, this mess uh, will force, I think, a rethink of the welfare state, which is long overdue. So that's my good news.
0: Chad, are you there?
5: Yes, I am. Um...
6: I think uh, people as consumers and organizations as producers have been forced into trying some new things. Uh, Some of those things are going to end up being a better way to do things, even if if and when we return to situation normal. We can always go back to the stuff that worked before, but we're going to have tried some new things that will stick. Thank you.
8: Andrew, anything positive we can say? Sure. You know, although we've focused very much up till now on the lack of international cooperation and dealing with the pandemic, we're seeing the beginnings now, even between the U.S. and Russia, and Russia and some of the European countries, of conversations about this, and, you know, under a best scenario, it might lead to a recognition of the need, in fact, uh, for greater cooperation on all of this. Right, Dan? Yeah, hi. Hi. Um...
9: Well, I, I hope that I, my message originally was uh, was optimistic. Um, and I, I'm certainly very optimistic. I, what's happening in our industry is very impressive. And I just see it's, it's an opportunity to accelerate um, the shift that was already just starting of seeing uh, building environments. Uh, as drivers of, of wellness and uh, productivity and, and improved learning, so and I, um, you know, we should have been doing this all along. And certainly, thought leaders, as I mentioned, were were, were going in this direction. And I think you're just going to see this kind of speed up and, and be much more widely adopted for
10: improved environments.
0: Thank you, uh, Mayor Adler, our last speaker.
10: You know, I'm optimistic because in the last 60 days, I've been able to. Uh, acquire and obtain and open more permanent supportive housing for people experiencing homelessness than I was able to achieve in the prior six years. And I think that we finally have the community will uh, uh, to, to really establish universal sick leave in the city.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. All right, well, that ends this uh, episode of What Happens Next, Week 9. I want to thank my speakers uh, for their insights, and I want to thank the listeners for listening in. Thank you very much, and you can disconnect. Thanks again. (laughs) Bye-bye.